from Treatment Advocacy Center, this is Make Them Hear You, a podcast to uplift the stories and voices of families of color affected by severe mental illness. I'm Sabah Muhammad, Senior Legislative and Policy Counsel and inaugural DJ Jaffe Advocate. Welcome. What's up, advocates? Welcome to Make Them Hear You. Today's topic, surviving schizophrenia specifically from the point of view of growing up with a parent with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. I had the pleasure of interviewing Corey Miner-Smith, author, attorney, activist, and motivational speaker. When Smith's mother was significantly affected by untreated paranoid schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, she was no longer able to care for Smith. Smith was able to survive her mother's untreated schizophrenia by relying on her village of friends, family, and mentors. When Smith became an adult, the roles reversed. She found herself prematurely responsible for her mother's care. Smith, now a successful HUD attorney under the Biden administration, spoke candidly about becoming a severe mental illness advocate and how the fire inside influenced her success and motivated her to write a memoir, Hashtag Driven. Corey and I share a light moment that highlights the education gap caregivers faced when attempting to support a loved one with untreated severe mental illness. I share Treatment Advocacy Center's Anisognosia Explainer video with Corey, a term she discovered through no fault of her own very late in her caregiving advocacy. Anisognosia, it's a lack of insight. Ah, it's that middle of syllable. I was saying anosognosia, and I'm like... (laughs) I I think I said anonognosia. (laughs) Even I learned from the video. I'm like, oh, I've been saying anosognosia. I appreciate that. Anosognosia. Anosognosia. Anosognosia, also called lack of insight, is a symptom of severe mental illness experienced by some that impairs a person's ability to understand and perceive his or her illness. It is the single largest reason why individuals like Corey's mother with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder refuse medications or do not seek treatment. Without awareness of the illness, refusing treatment appears rational, no matter how clear the need for treatment might be to others. Anosognosia. Anosognosia. No, because I'm saying it with all kind of truth and authority out here. (laughs) Although we can laugh now about the pronunciation of anosognosia, this education gap reveals more about our broken system than it does our knack for phonics. Corey was a teen when her mother was diagnosed. She wasn't exposed to vital caregiving tools until she was an adult advocating for her mother. Information is how we survive schizophrenia, and no caregiver should go without the information they need. And it needs to come from the source. As caregivers, we encounter the medical system long before we build our village. We are always learning, sometimes with enough time to help our loved ones, but all too often after it's too late. To help unpack the caregiver experience in surviving schizophrenia, our expert is Kathy Day, the family liaison for the Treatment Advocacy Center. Have you ever gotten any calls from caregivers who are children attempting to take care of a parent? And what kind of advice do you have to give that's different in that scenario? That actually happens a lot more frequently than I expected. And it's a very complex relationship when that happens. The adult child being a caregiver for a parent is the antithesis of what we all expect to happen. Our parents are supposed to care for us. But then when that reverses, when that happens to an adult child, depending on how old their mother is or father is, that helps me decide on what type of advice to give them. Sometimes the appropriate care is a nursing home because they can have some social, they could be in a facility where they're getting care and treatment. And sometimes that's appropriate. Corey's mother was young when severe mental illness entered the family possibly mid-20s or earlier when symptoms began and were undetected, late-20s or 30s by the time of her first involuntary commitment. And it would be a long journey of cycling in and out of hospitals before her mother would qualify for a nursing home. Most often, it's that mom can't live by herself anymore and is too disruptive to the children because the children have a spouse who may or may not understand or want to have that type of illness because it can be very disruptive in the home. If they're younger, oftentimes it comes down to getting guardianship and talking to them about guardianship because that's sometimes the only way they can be involved in the care of their parent. 
because the parents maybe don't even realize they have an illness and certainly don't realize they need help because they don't want help. There are all those factors in there that make it difficult. So sometimes it just comes down to getting guardianship. Corey's story checks all of these boxes as well. Marriage, children, even law school, all while trying to care for her mother and the people who cared for her when her mother was too sick. Corey's village of caregivers helped her through her troubled upbringing and her triumphs. She has maintained a sort of fire and grace that has helped her survive and now succeed. But even with grit and work ethic, the learning gap for caregivers, which includes a new vocabulary of symptoms and fruitless attempts to create a triggerless home, all while your loved one is constantly in psychosis, refusing to eat, sleep, and bathe, can be overwhelming. And even with my mother's diagnosis, I did a fireside chat for a Black mental health organization and the president is a doctor. And she told me that she had, you know, corrected that it's now called or known as bipolar. But when my mother was diagnosed, it was manic depression, paranoid schizophrenia. So the manic depression part is now known as bipolar. But I still go by what her diagnosis was at the time that I learned because that's what I'm sharing. I'm sharing, you know, when I was about 14, this is what she was diagnosed with. And then now that I know, I'd say it's now known as bipolar disorder. That's really important. We're in an age of language matters, and I really appreciate it in, in hashtag driven. You nod to the language of the time and to where you are now. I thought that was a very... Um, well, I didn't really didn't have the language when I wrote hashtag driven. I was just strictly writing from my experience and in the way that I could describe it from my experience, but I didn't know, you know, didn't know anosignosia for sure. The only really medical term I knew or phrase was my mother's diagnosis. So this book is sort of your introduction to becoming an advocate or just telling us who you are? Really, it was just a motivational memoir, but it was like post-publication. I came to the realization that this is a resource for people who have a loved one. When people hear my story, I have people that will come up to me and they identify with behaviors that they observe from a family member or a loved one and Maybe my mother does too, or because there's no diagnosis or, you know, maybe that person is already deceased and now they're like thinking about it. Oh, maybe that's what it was. This resource is so important because not many books do this. Mm -hmm. Even from the top advocates we have today, their experiences are not with a caregiver and then becoming caregiver. It's, it's a very special piece of work. Similar to the books Kathy recommends to families. Hashtag Driven provides vital information for families looking for community resources that don't exist for their loved ones. I will try having them get educated. I'll point them to Dr. Amador's books so that they can learn more about how to speak with the parent and get them engaged in treatment. The book Kathy is referring to is I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help by Dr. Javier Amador, a lifesaver if you have a loved one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. If they just don't know much about the illness, I will point them to Dr. E. Fuller-Torres, our wonderful founder, his book, Surviving Schizophrenia or Surviving Manic Depression, which is the old word for bipolar disorder, but it was written at that time and it's still relevant. So I'll point them toward different books that can help them learn more about the illness and how to cope or to support groups. It's a challenge because we're not used to taking care of our parents until they're much older. Corey's experience is one of overcoming from a young age. From birth, Corey was given a tough hand to play. My parents were young when they had me, 17 and 19. Unknown to the family, at the time, Corey's mother was near the age when symptoms of schizophrenia present. If her family was like most, unorthodox behavior would have been passed off as teenage stuff, angst and rebellion. Mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, are often childhood illnesses that go undetected. Because of her parents' circumstances, and eventually her mother's diagnosis of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, Corey was raised by a village of supportive adults, some friends, and lots of extended family. My aunt Niambe, she was always a part of my life. <laughs> she took me everywhere, and she really instilled the importance of education. She was a teacher. And she would take us to the museums, to the libraries, and hopefully we were being enriched and not just playing around while we were there. And I think I, I did. I was enriched by the things that I observed, especially at the museums, the science museums, things like that. 
So I really appreciate the lessons that I learned from her and just life experiences that I had with her. And when you read hashtag driven, you see some of the kind of superficial things that I tried to adopt in my life from other young women that I wanted to emulate. I was able to develop my own goals, my own pursuit for a better life based on some of the things that I learned from my Niyambe. That is wonderful. I love those layered lessons. You have something in you that you attribute to faith that you were able to just take the best from almost every situation you were in, no matter how difficult, unpleasant, trying, you left with the best of it and could make those decisions as a young person. Is there anything else aside from faith that you can pinpoint that was behind you? You talked about something about the fire inside. Yes. Because I like faith. I know faith is... Sometimes it could be your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It will keep you going. (laughs) But have you been able to pinpoint something, a lost lesson? You know, that hindsight that was also a motivating factor. Yes, really just, you know, there's a, a part in the book where I say I learned. My parents taught me basically what not to do. Some of my life experiences were very scary. The drug rate, for example, to be on your bed in your room, that's probably one of the most relaxed states that you could be in. And, you know, back then I had a walk band, you know, nowadays we we have our phones, but I had a walk band. I'm listening to MC Light, my favorite of all times. So I'm relaxed, I'm chill. And I just hear this big bang. And to see what was associated with that bang were just images of people in black. I don't even know how many with big black guns aimed at me and not knowing what was going on. That was one of the most scariest things that I've ever experienced in my life. And it helped me to understand the significance of safety and security and wanting to provide that for my children. I wanted my children to never go to bed fearful of anything that could happen because of the type of activities or people that I had in the household. So my lesson from one of the most scariest experiences is the importance of safety and security. That part of the hashtag driven really touched me. I had the same experience in a grade on my childhood home. And later in life, my sister and I both pinpointed that day as when we stopped feeling safe in the world. Just as you say, I was on my way to the kitchen and I could see these legs in black. And then one just came through our window, big guns out. We were in elementary school and I was the eldest. And the only thing I knew was to grab my sister's hands and run and sit in a closet. And they opened that closet Mm -hmm. with the guns pointed at us. And I felt just small and about to die. I mean, I get what you mean. And I had to find that point later thinking, of course, that doesn't bother me anymore. And it was still the point in my life where there were no safe spaces. And I understand completely that part in the book and just establishing home and stability. Those are reoccurring themes that are really important when you are a caregiver, when you have a loved one with severe mental illness. Like Corey, I understand what it's like to come from instability and trauma long before mental illness enters the family. The system is broken, and sometimes so are our homes. When we are lucky, we can use those early experiences of trauma to drive us towards stability in our own lives. But as advocates, we have to acknowledge that for many people of color, some of that trauma in our pre-severe mental illness lives involves police. And that means needing to call law enforcement for help is especially scary. Corey is extremely grateful that when the time did come to call for police help for her mother, the experience didn't end badly. I asked Corey if her experience with police caused her any hesitation when she needed first responders during her mother's mental illness crisis. I simply sought help. And who I knew were responsible for helping were the police. And... Any individuals at that time that I knew were involved with medical help, whether it was 911 or directly calling the police, however that was, and perhaps whatever information I shared over the phone, they knew to send a mental health professional with the police or the ambulance with the police. I just sought help. And I just praise God that me seeking help did not uh, risk my mother's life because I didn't know that part of the story yet Mm. for so many in our community. I was just seeking help. 
Corey's experience with this raid understandably means that interacting with police can trigger a fear response for her. Yet, as Corey points out, if a person in psychosis reaches the point where there's a real concern that they might become violent to themselves or towards someone else, there aren't really other options apart from a police response. This is one of the main reasons that as an advocate, I push so hard for interventions to be available earlier so a medical crisis doesn't become a police matter. As Corey indicates, whether your loved one gets help or handcuffs can come down to a matter of luck. We both want to see a status quo that prevents unnecessary law enforcement interaction. But know that in some cases it's unavoidable. We want police officers to have the tools they need to handle this responsibility with compassion. Or that they're trained fully in engaging these types of situations and knowing to de-escalate situations. We have some wonderful officers, law enforcement officers, our sheriff's department who are involved in our local NAMI. I participated in the training sessions that they have and sharing gives opportunity for those who have loved ones living with severe mental illness to share their stories, to help law enforcement to understand the experiences and encounters that they may have with individuals who may experience psychosis at the time that they encounter them. It would be great if officers were fully trained, but overall, mental health isn't a police issue. It's a medical one. Essentially, officers are in this position because the medical field passes the buck to the criminal system as a safety issue. On a practical level, police training, CIT, crisis intervention training, is optional and practices vary from state to state. When we say fully trained, we mean 40 hours. And that training does not include a mandatory anti-racism curriculum. Research consistently shows that even when officers do receive psychiatric crisis training, they are still likely to escalate the situation when the individuals in crisis are black or brown. That means that the only way to surely prevent a bad law enforcement encounter for both people in psychiatric crisis and the police is to get our medical and treatment systems to do their jobs and robustly intervene earlier. Then the response will be treatment oriented and not criminal justice oriented. Knowing these additional risks faced by families of color, Kathy is mindful to tailor her helpline advice to those realities. Speaking in generalizations and, and everybody's situation is different. But the one thing, if someone identifies to me that their, their family member is black, I'm cognizant of and respectful of the increased risk when that happens. So I generally try to find a mobile crisis team. I try to talk to them about different ways to talk to their loved one to maybe encourage them to go into treatment on their own. You know, we have to find different solutions based on cultural issues. Here, things get a bit complicated. As of July 2022, states across the country will have rolled out 988 for crisis response. 988 will divert most calls to 911 for mental health assistance to medical responders. However, should that crisis elevate to an emergency, then the call is kicked right back to police. And for Corey, access to 911 at the time of an emergency is personal. Anyone can understand why a well-trained police response is what she advocates for. Surviving schizophrenia meant surviving her mother's untreated delusions and hallucinations. We all want our loved ones to come home safe at night. You know, when her husband goes to work, she wants him to come home safely. When our loved ones are out and if they may have a, a psychotic break or exhibit behaviors that people don't understand, we want them to still be able to come home safely. So with all that being said, I just strongly encourage all those who are involved in addressing these very important matters out in the community keeping our community safe, that they recognize that there are a lot of people who are living with severe mental illness, who cannot control their behaviors, who may not understand the directives that they are being given, and they deserve to go home safely at night. You titled chapter nine of Hashtag Driven the Attack. It covers the day your mother attacked you. You write, at age 17, your worst fear had come true. 
Do you remember when fear of your mother took root? How long before 18? And did you express that fear to anyone before the attack? No, I was just trying to know and understand for myself what was going on. So let's just say I leave one troubled household and enter into another. So right after that drug raid, I went to stay with my mother for the summer and she really wanted me to stay. So I was in South Vallejo, California, where the drug raid happened. My mother was living in Houston, Texas at the time, and I decided to stay with her. Those years are all mixed up for me, but I would say between 13 and 14, I went to stay with my mother, one bedroom apartment. So I slept out in the living room on the couch and each night, it seemed like each night she was up moving around, walking. Sleep disturbance is a major symptom of severe mental illness. Sleep hours may be too few or too many. According to the Sleep Foundation, a change in sleep patterns can be the first sign of the start of psychosis, or it can mean that psychosis is coming back again after a period of being well. In other words, it can be a warning sign of psychosis to come. Family members with a sleep-deprived loved one should seek services and support for them immediately. At first, you know, I didn't think anything of it sometimes. You know, people don't sleep or whatever. But when it continued to happen and I would hear her throughout the night, I didn't know what she was doing. So that was the first start of my concern. What is she doing in the middle of the night, just up walking around like pacing and things of that nature? But then the statements like there's a bug in my car and the pastors are listening to me at church. And then when I went to work with her a few times, she was a caregiver for a young child and housekeeper, basically like a nanny housekeeper. And hearing the things that she explained to the attorney, who was the mother, that happened throughout the day. It just didn't sound right. And for lack of a better word, and in my teenage mind at that time, it sounded weird, right? And ultimately, my mother got fired. And I connected my own dots and saying, it's probably that stuff that she was saying. And this woman was probably concerned for her daughter's safety. Paranoia is the most commonly reported delusion among individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia spectrum illnesses. Paranoia, by definition, involves a profound disruption in the ability to function. Paranoia would have considerable consequences for social behavior, including the ability to maintain a job and relationships. So it continued on and it seemed like it became more and more what I now know are delusions paranoia, bugs in the car, bugs in the house. If there was a a hole in the wall, probably from a nail, she believed that there were recording devices in there. So that is where my concern slash fear started to boil a little bit. My mother and I shared a room. It was my mother, my grandmother, and my two uncles, We're like sandwich ages, if you will. I have an uncle that's like a year and a half older than me and an uncle a year and a half younger than me. And I'm in the middle. So I shared a room with my mother. And again, now I'm in the same room with her at night Mm -hmm. and she's walking around. In addition to her walking around, she's making statements about me not living anymore. She doesn't deserve me. It just didn't add up. You saying you don't deserve me, but I'm the one should die. <laughs> it just I didn't know how to. It was like I ignored it because I, I didn't want to process it, but it was running in the background. Command hallucinations are a subtype of auditory verbal hallucinations in schizophrenia. More likely than any other schizophrenic symptom, they may have an impact on an individual's behavior, meaning the individual may follow or react to the command. It is unclear how frequently command hallucinations are obeyed or result in violent behavior. One day, my mother was just talking inaudibly, mumbling, and no one saw her get up and go get the shears. But when I walked past her, the next thing I knew is I was being pulled back by my hair, and um, that was the attack. And I... Just thank God that she was never able to penetrate my skin with the shears because my uncle, my grandmother, and my cousin, it took all of them. My mother had like supernatural strength. It took all of them to get her off of me and to separate us. But whoever grabbed her wrist first to stop her from jabbing me with with the shears, I'm very, very grateful that I did not experience that pain. 
And not that it didn't hurt because it was bad because I was literally being pulled around by my hair to the root. So I lost a lot of hair at the top of my head, but it was nothing, you know, to me in comparison to just a thought that I could have been stabbed multiple times with those shears. An estimated 8.8 million American adults live with diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. About half of these individuals are untreated at any given time, most commonly because they lack insight into their condition. When untreated, these individuals are at high risk for a number of negative circumstances that negatively impact them and those around them. I must stress that psychosis does not mean that someone is certain to be violent. Individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness are most likely to be victimized. However, violence can occur. And Corey experienced this family violence firsthand. It's something that when we're talking about the difference in mental health, mental illness, severe mental illness, we're always careful to say, not everyone's violent, not everyone's violent, but we live in a world where safety has to be talked about. We can't afford to say there is no space where violence, even if it's their protection, we know it's the delusions. We don't have the comfort, like you said, to wait for that moment. And it, the laws want us to wait for that moment. Other right. people, they may not be dealing with severe mental illness or mental illness, want to deny that that moment is coming, but you felt it and you knew it. And that, that just really resonated with me, that knowing this is getting worse and now I'm in the room with her. And that intervention is where the laws need to be because we did not need to wait for that moment. No one benefited from waiting for that moment. Right. And it is a, a very real possibility. Unfortunately, I lived with that fear. Mm -hmm. So for example, when my mother started to become aggressive towards me again, like in my adult life, and now I'm working and she was coming to my job, I describe it in the book. It was like a, I transformed back into my childhood and, and this fear that I had that she would do something. I don't know what, but there was so much anger exhibited verbally and you could just see it, but she never physically did anything else to me. But the fear was there that it was a very real possibility, even though it had happened like 16 years prior and she had not done anything to me. So the most important, again, in creating those boundaries, the ultimate goal, her being safe and I being safe mm -hmm. and she receiving the treatment services, professional assistance that she needs. And I want to do whatever part I can to ensure that it continues, regardless if I'm directly involved. From a bird's eye view, these resources for mental health seem abundant. It seems as simple as needing help and asking for it. On the ground, however, asking for help is a privilege. When you ask for help, where you live and the money you make will have an effect on the resources. When that happens, it's a village of caregivers that makes sure treatment stays consistent despite those barriers. That's really important. And I love the don't interrupt the services is something that a lot of caregivers really deal with, especially when incarceration is involved, then services are cut off. You've had really, really good experiences with her, her intervention teams being consistent. My yeah. brother has been left at phone booths when we still had a few by his intervention team. They would fall back on sort of, it's a choice. He's grown. And it's like, well, don't you know he's sick? They didn't have that stick to it and consistency. Now, were you already a lawyer or was it just something in Ohio? I know Ohio does have a reputation for some pretty good services in some certain areas. But what do you think it was that you were able to get these teams that continue to come back to your mom? Uh, really just learning because I really don't feel that my legal status, <laughs> me being a lawyer, was necessarily instrumental in the, in the process. It helped in me, you know, using my skills to research and to learn more. But I really do believe it's just 
being involved. And then I worked for the local housing authority. So I was so involved in like housing and the importance of those with mental health issues and concerns, having the opportunity for housing with reasonable accommodations and things of that nature. But a lot of my growth and development in this space was throughout my childhood, you know, by taking her to appointments and things of that nature, I understood which organizations provided which services and what she needed. And then unfortunately, the times that she would be committed to the state hospital. Above it all, making sure that people knew she had loved ones that were there for her. Corey, through experience, has learned a vital part of being a caregiver and access to treatment for a loved one, something that Kathy takes seriously. The system has expectations on us to take care of our loved one, yet they aren't providing the tools that we need. So I've done some research on that. There's a lot of good information out there that says that having family members involved in the care reduces recidivism, reduces the amount of jail time, hospital time, homelessness, if we're given the tools. Frankly, having the system, using that as a very broad thing, each of the facilities, outpatient, inpatient, whatever, engage family members and give us the education and the tools that we need. In the UK, they have what they call the triangle of care. And that triangle has three sides. One side is the treatment team. One side is the family. and One side is the patient. All three have to work together or that triangle collapses. The treatment team and the family work toward the best interests of the patient. And by doing that, they do have much better outcomes than we have here. So there's just so many things we could do. And for me, that one is the easiest, quickest, and least expensive thing to add into the system of care to improve outcomes for everybody. Although vital, family involvement isn't easy. Often, it's not welcomed by burned-out medical professionals who mistakenly fear lawsuits. The evidence shows that individuals only survive schizophrenia with a community who fights for their access to treatment. That community does not have to be the family you were born into, just the family that advocates for you. There are so many people who go through this life living with severe mental illness and they don't have an immediate support from their family or friends or caregivers, those in the medical profession, automatically discount them and think that they don't have family members or friends that are going to be there for them because a lot of people do give up or they just can't handle it. But no, I have found it necessary to make it clear that she has family. So you're not going to just discount her. You're not going to just not provide the services because we're calling. We want to be a part of the meetings. Yes, this is frustrating. Yes, it's overwhelming at times, but we're here. The same village that caught you, some of those same people showed up to help you with the housing for your mother, with food, even giving you phone calls in the middle of the night just to say, hey, I saw your mother doing this. You even said when the DA hired you, that same village that helped you through the guardianship process with your grandmother, they were the ones who hired you. Yeah, that was very, very, very interesting to me. And it just brought me some pleasure and, and honor in what I was doing it with my career and just knowing and understanding how these different positions in the community, elected officials, uh, positions within our hospitals, within our law enforcement agencies or whatever organization, how they're so critical in the real lives of real people in the community. And if you don't believe it, you could read hashtag driven and see that it's the truth. Throughout Corey's wonderful book, she uses pop culture to illustrate how comparing TV and movies to her own experiences created a frame of reference that empowered her to think differently about things like love and family. I love how you use movies. My loved one is a bit too ill. You've changed my attitude of using movies, I have to say. You compare the soloist and just that sort of zooming out and then seeing your mother and then saying you don't see that she wasn't at your wedding. You don't see that. You see when she made it to your graduation and was with your father. I do love that. How did you get to that point? I want to be a little bit more nuanced, but it's such a big moment. Reading that was like the solo state, like, oh, he plays piano, so it's okay that he's sick. But when you wrote it the way you did, I was like, I hear you. I received that. And you really just, it's so much grace. I, I don't know how you do it. A lot of my initial learning was from pop culture. First movie I talk about is Out of Darkness. 
It's a television movie, 1994. I was in college. And when I saw the preview, I said, I have got to be in my room and watch this because I saw something so familiar. And it really helped me to identify and know that this was bigger than me and my mom. This is like something that's for real. With the soloist, it really, really helped me to connect because at that time, my mother was really struggling. She was struggling with drugs. She was struggling with her behaviors. And it was difficult for me to understand what I could do and what I could not do. But what I ultimately learned from that movie was the initial steps to loving her through the severe mental illness. And I'm not saying despite, because this is not, you know, something negative or something you just got to deal with. This is loving through, letting your love be more than any of the worst symptoms or behaviors that you could see from your, from your loved one and knowing that they still need love. And that's how I, I learned to, embrace my mother's behaviors more and her need ultimately for a high quality of life, regardless of whatever she's going through at any given time. And I want to do all I can to, to help her to have that. That's remarkable. You mentioned love and loving your mother and the ways in which you love her, but you also say in the book that you realized you didn't even know if you loved your parents at one point. And when you had your sons, you had to revisit those definitions of love. I had to do the, the same thing in my life, coming from the home that I came from. How did you do that? How did you reclaim love and feel comfortable knowing that you were expressing love? How did you get reconnected to love? It's a process, a journey, and just even identifying with the feeling, with the word, with how it impacts all of our lives. And, you know, there's different love languages, right? And which one do you identify or which one do you exhibit? How do you express your love? So while I didn't feel love in the sense of, really it was identifying what I saw on television, the hugs, the getting tucked into bed, things that are in the Hallmark commercials that make you say, oh, I didn't necessarily see that or experience that every day. And me not being with my parents, either of them, for extended periods of time, I didn't develop a, a relationship. So I felt like I lacked love. I felt like I lacked those roles that parents traditionally fill in a child's life. But again, you can't change people, but you can't control yourself and, and how you move forward while you're here on this earth. And what I ultimately knew is that when I had children, I was going to do all I could to be all that I wanted or whether it was what I saw on television or whatever. I wanted my children to feel loved, whatever that meant for them. I wanted to be one that provided that sense of love, support, stability, caring, all of it. And so I did all I knew to do to do that. And with boys, I don't know if it's all boys, but like trying to hug and kiss them all the time, that ain't going to <laughs> So there had to be other expressions of love, you know, mm -hmm. leaving notes, little terms of endearment. Although I didn't know when to cut that off because like they're grown now and I'm still Keep calling doing it. Keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to touch on what you said about TV. This is one of the notes I have that Leave It to Beaver is recurring the fairy tale of who you thought your parents were and who they became. Where are you now in that sort of space? Do you still want the TV 2.3 kids and a dog? You write that a lot. And I know going moving around, you probably wanted it, but I'm very curious yeah. as to that journey. That was my vision of stability and just the air quote American dream. But I really feel that I was slapped into reality, that that is not life for everybody. And as I've learned from my counseling, she'll stop me sometimes and say, you're shitting again. Because mm. we can go into this rabbit hole of I should have did this and this should have happened and should and should and should. Well, it didn't. So how do you go with the real facts of where you are? right now, what the present facts are right now, what is right now, and not what should be or could be. Everything is not necessarily meant to last forever. 
And if it's no longer serving you like a goal, you know, you don't reach that goal or maybe that goal is not important to you anymore. It's not valuable. It's not serving the same purpose. It's okay to let it go. And I just encourage people to reevaluate things, people, relationships, and know how you can move forward. Because if something is causing you to stress out every day, all day, you need to address that. Mm -hmm. That's not something that you just have to accept. You have to address it. And ultimately, sometimes the resolution is to let go. That's beautiful. And it's, it's one of my favorite things you write, that I had grown in understanding. You write the cycle continued. Every year, I would like to just say, I've grown in understanding. <laughs> Something <laughs> And I found my way. Page 97, everybody. <laughs> I've grown in understanding. <laughs> I love it. You just mentioned letting go. And I could not help reading this to just, was there ever a time you said, I'm going to leave this life and I will let all of you go this time? your mother, your father, any of the other things? And what do you do to combat those feelings if you've had them with your mother that I'll leave this life to? Yeah, it really circles back to the boundaries and establishing the boundaries, knowing that, you know, you may have to move them, reshape them and loving from a distance. So again, the concept of love and what it means to you, what it is to you and how you exhibit that towards another person or how they exhibit it towards you. Because what I had to learn and with the help of counseling is that my parents did the best that they knew how to do. They loved within their capacity to love. So maybe that love that they shared is not my definition or not what I expected love to be. Everybody is not going to behave the way that you behave. And you have to learn to love people for who they are. And again, letting go or loving from a distance. Because if something is causing you harm or a person is causing you harm, there are necessary boundaries that may need to be established. So sometimes that's having some space, not necessarily talking every day. Sometimes that's finding other ways to communicate. I wanted to ask you about chapter 13 titled The Mental Ward. You briefly talk about the look, the blank, empty look. That's a reoccurring thing that still haunts me about my loved one. I don't think I've seen my little brother's eyes as eyes in about 20 years. At first, you disavowed it because your mother didn't have the look. And then you say, eventually, you did see it. But just let our audience understand what you mean by the look. Well, some of my first encounters with the mental health war was the appropriate term now. That's how I referenced it in the book, but that's how I knew it. I didn't feel that my mother belonged there. Whether I was in denial or just didn't see it all yet, I didn't feel that my mother belonged there. And so some of the first people that I walked past as I went to visit my mother, they just had a blank look. It's as if they are physically there, but not there. In the sense of not knowing their surroundings, in the sense of not knowing what was going on, in a sense of not even maybe knowing why they are where they are or where they are. And I just did not see that in my mother. I didn't see my mother with her hair, uncombed, disheveled clothing, makeup too heavy, inappropriately dressed for the weather. I didn't see that. But the one day I did was an unexpected encounter with my mother. I was in the parking lot and she came up to my car. So just say I'm fumbling around with stuff in my car and I happened to just look up at my mother and oh. I was like, she has to look. Oh. She looks at this very moment like she doesn't know where she is what she's doing, who I am, and why we are right here with each other right now. Just empty. Corey is talking about that thousand-yard stare, commonly associated with PTSD, veterans, or trauma. For schizophrenia, it's a symptom associated with impaired emotional functioning. For family members, it's a sign of true disconnection. It's how we know where our loved ones are in psychosis. That look is frightening for us doubly frightening for our vulnerable loved ones. It's not so much fear of our loved ones. It's the not knowing, the powerlessness. We, in those moments, are the well ones, but there's little to nothing we can do to connect. In a bizarre way, accepting that powerlessness 
can be an empowering survival tool. You stop focusing on what can't be done and you do what you can. And so just these different experiences combined together just helped me to embrace my mother more and know that I had much, much more to learn and much, much more to do if I was going to continue to help her. And my goal was to continue to help her. You're such a good daughter. <laughs> she won't always say that, but yeah. My goodness. I, you know what? I, don't, I do not want to give like a false impression that this is easy because it is absolutely not. This is a no. very difficult and overwhelming situation. But for me, the ultimate goal is to make sure my mother has the highest quality of life possible. And I know that that for her is inclusive of professional mental health services treatment, medication. And I just appreciate her willingness to be a part of the process because there were many, many years where she was very resistant. Mm -hmm. How do you stay hopeful? Prayer, family support, and knowing, you know, we have these lives to live, right? And being a caregiver, it is absolutely essential to implement self-care, whatever that is for yourself. It's not this grand thing of going to the spa every weekend or going to a retreat, whatever self-care is for you. And for me, it was simply resting. Mm -hmm. You cannot pour from an empty cup. And I know we've heard that many, many times, but you cannot. It is like the safety precautions and procedures that you hear on the airplane whenever you ride on the plane Mm -hmm. to put on your mask first before you go assisting other people. Are they telling you that because they want you to let other folks die around you? No, they're telling you that so you don't die. Because literally, it's backed by science. It is scientifically proven that you will lose brain capacity because you don't have air. So you need to put on your mask, literally and figuratively, in life before or in order to keep helping other people. And that does not mean that you love them any less because you are putting yourself first. That's wonderful. Heartbreaking, wonderful, inspiring. Your penchant for grace and being a good daughter is, it's motivational to me. I even still need to hear this. My job is advocacy and I do this broad understanding for all severe mental illness. And your book has helped me think about just being a good sister and what that would mean for my brother. Because it's, it's so much easier to write the next law review article, to write the next policy, to give a testimony. It's very hard to get the family together and to stay on top of the treatment team and to make sure my mom's still motivated. The hope is there and we, we go about it. But I, I think I'm going to gift this book to everybody so we can all be revitalized. <laughs> we need that revitalization. It's going on 20 years now. We don't realize how many people are caring for a loved one, either for a long-term or short-term time, and how we haven't taught each other how that's supposed to look. We have no template for it. And you have really given us that for severe mental illness, for all families, for women of color, for divorced women, for moms of boys, for women who have (laughs) been to law school, who never achieved their dreams. You have everything in Hashtag Driven for people who need to just feel like their circumstances won't define where they go. And thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, expand this message and amplify the voices that are willing to share their stories and help other families. And ultimately that's what it is for me because back in, again, in college, when I was really trying to know and understand Out of Darkness was a a big stepping stone for me and my knowledge and understanding of this whole situation. Absolutely. Oh, I understand. Yeah, we can't. There is no limit on the amount of awareness that we still need to bring to severe mental illness, mental illness, black mental health. It's there's no limit. We can do it all. That's the good part. Yeah. Interviewing Corey Minor Smith, reading her book, Hashtag Driven, was truly a pleasure. Against all odds, she thrived. She was saved by her village of family, friends, and mentors. When it was time for her to become her mother's caregiver, she utilized her faith, desire for stability, and safety to create the life she wanted. While Corey's story is deeply inspiring, 
It begs the question, why do we have a system in place that requires such sacrifice from family members? While lobbying, I once had a state representative tell me that my brother's care was the family's responsibility. And it stopped me dead in my tracks because I thought, do you know how high level mental health issues are? I majored in film, sir. What am I supposed to do? So I ask you, is, is caregiving our responsibility? By default, yes, it is. And there are too many family members that this is way too much to deal with without the support from the system of mental health care. And sadly, sometimes they have no choice but to let their loved one go. If their loved one has a belief that they need to go live by the river and be homeless, then the family are powerless to stop that. And at some point, family says, I've tried and tried and tried, and I just can't try anymore. And they let it happen. And that's because they don't have the skills. As I used to say to people, I'm his therapist, I'm his case manager, I'm his pharmacist, and I'm his house parent, you know, parent also in charge of his housing, etc. I'm his appointment setter. I'm, I'm this, you know, it's so many things. If we were to quantify it in dollars, I know that overall caregivers... There was a report in 2015 by the AARP, and it included all caregivers, not just those of severe mental illness. And in fact, I'm not even sure they included us in this. And they determined that family caregivers probably saved the system roughly $650 million a year. Imagine what kind of training programs could be put together for family caregivers with that amount of money. That would enable us to help even more and take the burden off the system. It's just, it's just wild. How Corey has survived her mother's diagnosis of schizophrenia is truly remarkable. In this work, I've discovered it's not the illness that's most problematic. There can be healing. It's our collective response that has made schizophrenia something we struggle to survive. With well-placed, well-funded resources, without obstacles created by laws, our families and loved ones could thrive but we've left them out in the cold. Corey was lucky to find her voice and tap into the fire inside. Her mother is lucky enough to have a village that did not abandon her. But it shouldn't come down to luck. There should be resources. In spite of medical and legal neglect, Corey made them hear her. True, our numbers are small, but since when does majority rule mean that the minority suffers? Ultimately, We need our village to survive schizophrenia. If we want to go far, we must go together. And you can't go far by leaving people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness in the margins. Make them hear you by lobbying to financially support family caregivers. Speak up for services in your community. Speak out against criminalization. And if you are a caregiver supporting a loved one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness, please visit thetreatmentadvocacycenter.org to learn how you can support your loved one through advocacy. Thank you for joining us on Make Them Hear You. I'm Sabah Muhammad, and until next time, only good things. Treatment Advocacy Center is a national nonprofit organization that helps protect family members affected by severe mental illness against a healthcare and legal system stacked against them. For more information, resources, or to get involved, please visit our website at www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org.